I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hi there, and welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I am your host, Effie Parks. There is still time to register for the Rare Disease Fair virtual conference on June 4th and 5th, 2021. There are some incredible speakers and resources lined up, so head over and register at rarediseasefair.com. I hope to see you there. My guest today is such a delight. I mean, I get emails back from him that say things like, Splendid, and do you fancy a quick chat, Effie? <laughs> He's from the UK. He has an out-of-this-world impressive resume, starting as one of the first scientists to work on the Human Genome Project, and has around 27 years of experience doing so. He led the initial research analysis for human chromosome 10 and established international collaborations on various projects. He's working on so many things, and he's currently the patient advocate of engagement lead at Congenica. He's a brilliant scientist, and most of all, his dad heart is right out in front. It became even more personal after he became a dad to two children who have rare diseases and medical complexities. So... Let's just get into it. Please enjoy my conversation with super dadvocate Charles Stewart. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show. And thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along. Yes. Well, you're, you're popping up all over my feed. And another rare dad actually sent me your name and was like, why don't you know Charlie? And I was like, well, that's a good question. <laughs> so I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad we can make this work. I know we're in opposite ends of the world. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, me too. So you come from several angles and several of those are above my head, but we're going to break it down and we're going to introduce you to my audience. Some of them I know have probably already heard of you. You're kind of a big deal. You have a very valuable and impressive background and not just that, but it's personal. So can you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a very kind introduction. So I suppose I'll tell you about my career first. So in January 1994, I started working on the Human Genome Project. So I've been working on the human genome in one form or another for around 27 and a half years. And that was at the Wellcome Sanger Institute on the Wellcome Genome Campus near Cambridge in, in the United Kingdom. And the Sanger Centre, as it was called then, um, is probably most famous for generating around one third of, of the human genome. And it's it's a wonderful campus. It's, it's a very beautiful campus. And I've been very privileged to have actually worked on that campus, as I said, for 27 and a half years. I did various different bits of work on the human genome. I was originally involved with, with the mapping and sequencing. And then once the human genome was sort of coming towards uh, completion at sort of the beginning of the 2000s, I moved from sequencing into the i would say the for me the more interesting side of of the human genome and that was actually looking at where the genes in the human genome actually lay within the genome so of course um i'm sure many of you will know that uh, the human genome doesn't 
all code for, for genes. In fact, only around 1% to 2% of it is responsible for what we call the protein coding genes, and those are the bits of the genome that make the protein, or we'll call those bits that are functional. So at the time, I was looking at of ways of, of as, if you can imagine, sort of drawing the bits of the genome that had the genes in. And uh, this is fascinating. Um, and I spent a, you know, a lot of time in those early days actually looking at other, other genomes as well, because um, to identify uh, bits of the genome that uh, have genes in them, it's, it's not actually that easy to do. They're, you have to use a lot of sort of either computer algorithms or you can look across other, other genomes to see which, say in a mouse or in a worm, which bits of those genomes are similar. So believe it or not, you know, there are bits in the human genome that are very similar in mouse and also in the worm and, and fish. And it's these regions that give us an idea as to regions that are likely to be functional because of course through evolution evolution manages to sort of throw away the bits of the genome that are not so important perhaps um, and what it does is it protects those bits of the genome that are important and this is so this is one of the techniques we use for um, looking where genes are in, in the human genome so if we move forward to around the year um, I think it's around 2013 I had just well, my wife and I would we'd, we'd had a baby girl and she had been on intensive care for a month because she was born at around 29 weeks and we left hospital after a month and uh, then you know things were fine but it wasn't until sort of she was eight months old that we noticed she'd stopped doing a lot of the things that she had been doing sort of taking an interest in her surroundings laughing smiling etc and then she started making this really weird movement sort of jackknife movements she'd throw out her arms her eyes would roll into the back of her head and her head would shoot to one side and it was very very strange we knew there was something very wrong and you know we'd spoken to uh, to our gp about it about concerns we'd had with her actually before her seizures as they were um, had started and the gp said oh it's probably just gastrointestinal reflux but we knew this is it was probably far more serious than that so obviously we'd videoed her and we'd taken her to our our local hospital and very luckily for us our local hospital is the teaching hospital for cambridge university clinicians which of course means it's a it's a massive hospital it's got some you know some some of the top clinicians in the country there from anywhere around the world i would say and uh, she was diagnosed with something called West syndrome, which is a, a, a very severe type of epilepsy that can be potentially be fatal if, if, if you can't get on top of the seizures. So she was entered into the Deciphering Developmental Disorders study, which didn't find anything. Now, that's a study based out of the UK, actually based on Sanger Institute, that looks at around 14,000 XM trios of mum, dad and, and child. That didn't find anything. So she was then entered into the UK 100,000 Genos Project, which is a a very large, famous genome study that has looked at around 100,000 patients with either rare disease or cancer. Uh, sadly, that didn't find anything. And in the meantime, my, my wife was pregnant. So the fact that we hadn't found anything in these two genome studies meant that, uh, you know, we were we were slightly relieved that there was something nasty that, you know, obviously clinicians knew about. But at the same time, we were still left looking for answers. So as I said, my wife was pregnant and, and then gave birth to my uh, to my son Jasper, but sadly he he was born at 28 weeks and he suffered catastrophic brain damage during birth, um, which means that both of my children um, are severely disabled. They both have severe cerebral palsy, sort of at the sort of the most extreme uh, end of cerebral palsy. And then my son Jasper, he he too had his genome sequence, but again nothing was found. So I had this sort of uh, interesting uh, experience of being a genome scientist. 
um, as well as being the father of two children with severe neurological disorders. And because of this, I've, I've very much sort of thrown myself into the advocacy world where I, you know, I, I obviously I, I look specifically at epilepsy and, and, and cerebral palsy. And in fact, today there's, a, there's been a, um, uh, an email go out because I've been um, elected onto the International Cerebral Palsy Genome Consortium, and cerebral palsy, there are key genetic drivers behind a lot of these, a lot of these cases, which you know, people still think it's an accident of birth. Whereas, of course, we know that increasingly know that there are genetic drivers behind this. So I, I have a specific interest in epilepsy and cerebral palsy, but you know I, I speak to a lot of rare disease patients, a lot of rare disease advocacy groups, and I, you know, I advocate for anyone who, who I speak to, and you know, it's a passion of mine because the patient voice is so, so powerful. You know, it, it can really bring about change. Uh, I totally agree, and I think that that's definitely becoming commonplace right now. As a genomic scientist and seeing the odds of just looking at all the data all day, every day, did you ever think that this was a possibility and that it kind of happened twice? I mean, it, it happened twice. Yeah, you don't think it could happen to you at all, I think. I think when everyone sets about making a family, you never consider that anything bad can go wrong because it doesn't, does it? You know, you, you get married or you meet with your partner and you have a child and then you know you have a family and they grow up and they go to school and you know, they go off to college and then they look after you when you're old you never think that, that, that that's how it is so of course when it happens the first time you know you're absolutely you know it's you're stunned it's shocking it's it, the, the, i can't describe it really in many respects i suppose we wanted to complete our family with 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 jasper and um, i suppose rather foolishly thought you know we we, we perhaps there would be a a second child who might be able to look after my daughter when you know when when she's old but of course that didn't happen um and i suppose on reflection i i was probably distracted by her epilepsy you know that was the main feature that was the main thing of concern to us and, and in fact when we were given the diagnosis that she had cerebral palsy it came as a bit of a relief that it was only cerebral palsy that she had and perhaps not something much more progressive something like leukodystrophy. Perhaps I should have considered the fact that it was a premature birth that was likely to have caused uh, her epilepsy rather than something specifically genetic in her brain. Who knows? It's a lot of ifs and buts, but you know, if, if perhaps we'd thought about the, um, the premature birth as being the cause of, of my daughter's problems, perhaps there might have been things we could have considered during uh, the, my wife's pregnancy that, that perhaps perhaps might have prevented that happening. But again, you know, preterm birth is an area, it's a massively complicated area um, that, that you know, very little is known about the, you know, the, the genetics behind it. So it, it's an area that needs to, to have a lot of work done on, similarly to cerebral palsy. Yeah, like you said, I think it's not just accidental. There's usually a, an underlying answer to it, but super complicated. As a scientist and then becoming a rare disease dad, what gaps did you find like Coming from the background of science, what were you exposed to all of a sudden that you had no idea about from the patient perspective? Like, what was just the most drastic discrepancy? That's an excellent question. Well, so first of all, what I would say is one of the most amazing things was being in contact with clinicians, you know, being in contact as a rare disease dad, being in contact with uh, clinicians. I saw this most incredible side of them. You know, they I genuinely believe that they care about their patients almost like they're their own children. You know, it's it's astonishing the sort of characteristics you would need to be to, to have to be a, a a top clinician. But at the same time, 
you know, some of these clinicians who were actually dealing with my family, you know, I was dealing with them on a professional basis. You know, so I work for a, a rare disease company called Congenica, and Congenica looks at patient genomes as a as a way of sort of explaining some of these you know, really rare diseases. And some of these people I was actually dealing with, and that was really, in some respects, that was really quite complicated. That was quite quite a difficult relationship to have. But what I noticed, of course, is is that these clinicians were amazing, amazing people. I suppose on, on the other hand, I also spoke a lot with scientists. In academia, you know, you, you're the, the, the currency of academia is your publication rate. You know, how many publications can you push out in a year? How many grants can you success, successfully apply for? And it was clear to me that, well, clearly it was a labour of love for many academics who were working in perhaps epilepsy or other neurological disorders, that there was this sort of element of getting out as many papers as possible, you know, not necessarily following through on a piece of work, you know, doing something different. And it wasn't until I'd been doing a, you know, doing a, a, a few talks for some academic groups, you know, sort of internationally, that I, I was struck that they were, that they hadn't ever really been exposed to the patient voice. And I know that when I spoke to them about the, you know, the, the, the challenges that we had, they were, they were actually struck by how important their work actually is. It's not just a sitting in their labs, you know, cut off from everybody else doing their lab work, etc. It actually makes a massive difference. And that's what I think struck me as an amazing thing that, you know, if the patients can get in front of scientists, it makes a massive difference to the work that scientists do. And they suddenly realize the importance of what they're doing. I love that answer. So how do you how do you do this, Charles? Like, what does your day look like? How are you balancing this career and all of your advocacy work, and also being a dad to two kiddos with severe healthcare needs? Well, so first of all, I would say that my children are healthy. That might sound really weird. You know, they they, they don't require um, enormous input for maintaining their health. They require a lot of physical help. They need to be lifted because they can't walk, they can't stand, they have limited speech or, or, or no speech. But at the moment, they, they both seemed, I mean, I'm touching wood here because this is just, you know, you know what's going to happen. But yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they are okay. They require some, some help. But um, yeah, at the moment, you know, seizures are controlled. Um, although that's very much likely to change in the future, sadly, you know, unfortunately. But my wife's given up work and she's a full-time carer. And even though the children, you know, they, they go to they go to school or they go to nursery, the time that they're not actually in the house, she will spend the day talking to therapists, talking to clinicians, they're arranging appointments, arranging arranging people to come out and, you know, perhaps adjust some of the equipment they've got. Yeah, it's just a never ending battle. In some respects it's difficult to separate out my my career work with my my advocacy work because you know I'm I'm always making new connections, always speaking with people, always trying to find out uh, people who might be interested in in chatting. Because I I, I found that um, you know just by talking to people, just having a, a, a conversation, you get to know people. You know you, you build up a friendship, and then you begin to start sharing ideas about what helps, what works in the field of advocacy. So I suppose I, I vaguely have a nine to five job. Well, it's actually a bit earlier and a bit later than that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, it, because it's such a passion, it, it, it's really more than just a career. 
Would you say that building your community and having these chats with people and just having these types of conversations is kind of what has helped you along the way? Like, is this a resource that has really pushed things forward for you was kind of finding your people? Yeah, absolutely. When you receive this, you know, really tragic news that you're going to have a child who who is not going to live a, a typically normal life, everything changes. And I often liken the sort of life that we lead or, or people with rare diseases lead is very much like what people are experiencing through the COVID uh, lockdown. We are really restricted as to where we can go. We've always been because, of course, we have you know big wheelchairs. We have um, a big car so that it means it doesn't fit into all the car parking spaces. You know, we, there are certain places we just cannot go because of wheelchair access. And this is lockdown for us. You know, lockdown, not really much has changed during lockdown for us. You know, we, we would always be a bit nervous about having to go out anywhere, really, you know, packing everyone up into the big car, strapping them up in. And it's, you know, we would often just not really want to go anywhere. Um, so, you know, this is other people's experience of our lives, I think, lockdown. I think so many of us would agree with you uh, about that, that our lives didn't really change much. And if anything, maybe in a weird way, it enhanced it because everybody kind of got to our level and saw the way we were living day to day and kind of got a peek into our lives in a more realistic way. So it kind of brought us weirdly closer together with some people. Yeah, I, I, I probably agree with that, yes. <laughs> what advice do you have for dads out there raising kiddos like yours who are at the same time like leading a crusade like you to find treatments and cures and advocate? I think people deal with things in very different ways. I know of of dads who, who just couldn't cope and they've upped and left. One particular friend, he actually, he just couldn't cope with his son's diagnosis. I mean, he, his, his son had a... Very sadly, uh, he had a, a leukodystrophy that came on around the age of seven or eight, so he developed completely normally and then developed these seizures at the age of sort of seven or eight. And um, it was clear that um, his son was not going to live very long, live, in, live into sort of young adult, adulthood, and he couldn't cope. But he did come back. He did. He, he needed a bit of time away, and he did come back to the family, and uh, he was an amazing dad, amazing, amazing, amazing dad. It's a massively difficult thing to do. What I would say is important is being there for my wife as much as I can. She's the one who, who tends to do sort of the heavy lifting. Well, I say figuratively heavy lifting. And I, obviously I do, the, I do the lifting of the children, but, you know, the heavy lifting of, of, of the day-to-day -day things and let, let her have some break time, let her have some time where she can just sit and do nothing. Or in my, my wife's case, you know, do some baking. Baking is her downtime. She looks absolutely manic in the kitchen, crazy woman running around doing stuff, but that's her relax that's her relaxation time. Yes, it, it is difficult. Um, and I know I throw myself into my work and I think that's a very sort of man thing to do or dad thing to do, should I say, uh, is, is, is to do that sort of thing. But um, it's difficult, but you know, it's, it's really important that um, we share the burden. Mm, I'm just nodding along with you. I just so agree with being thoughtful about how everyone copes differently and how everyone brings something different to the table in what they're going to do to take care of themselves and their family. And I also just love that you recognize that your wife is doing all of the logistical stuff, the, you know, the, the therapies, the book, all this madness that that happens all day as a caregiver. And the number one thing everyone wants is a little time alone. So 
high five to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I think my wife knows I'm rather chaotic, so wouldn't trust me with any of the planning anyway. <laughs> so I kind of fell to her anyway, by default. Uh, well, I've heard about some of the meals that she makes you for dinner, so hopefully I can come over and get one of those sometime. Yeah, she's pretty handy uh, at that as well. Yes, yeah, she's awesome. Amazing lady. <laughs> well, Charles, why don't we kind of circle back to what you mentioned earlier, because it is breaking news today about the elected position, if you will, that you've been nominated for. So why don't you just kind of give us the rundown of what it is exactly and what you're most excited about for it? Yes, of course. So I, I've been in conversation with the International uh, Cerebral Palsy Genome Consortium, some of the members, for, for a little while. You know, I'm fascinated by uh, cerebral palsy from a scientific point of view. In many respects, Cerebral palsy, the way people think about cerebral palsy, is very much like how people thought about epilepsy sort of 40 years ago. Now, 40 years ago, epilepsy was epilepsy. You just had epilepsy. No one really understood what it was. You know, it could have been environmental, it could have been banged your head or so. But increasingly, sort of from, I guess, from sort of the 70s, 80s onwards, it became increasingly understood that epilepsy was very much caused by you know but by genetic mutations obviously not not every every cause of epilepsy clearly not every cause of, of epilepsy but increasingly we understand that you know for example drave syndrome around 80 percent of cases of drave syndrome are caused by mutations in the gene scm1a and interestingly there's um there's a publication uh sam berkovich for a couple of years ago where they, they he suggests in, in in sort of this review that you know Probably there's a genetic susceptibility to anyone who has epilepsy. You know, they probably have a, a genetic susceptibility to it. So the importance of, of genetics is clearly there for epilepsy. But cerebral palsy, again, is, is very much un, uh, unknown. People still think it's an, you know, it's an accident of birth. Um, but we know that around one in four children will have a genetic cause for their epilepsy. And I'm sure the more we sequence the more we will find causes for cerebral palsy. Anyway, so they um, they said, yeah, would you be interested in joining a governance council? And I said, well, that'd be wonderful. You know, I've got a, I've got a huge interest in, in this sort of thing. They said, okay, well, we'll uh, we'll put it to a vote, and they unanimously agreed to to elect me to their to the governance council, which is fantastic. And I mean, there, there are no specific roles for people on the governance council, but I hope that they get three for the price of one with me, you know, as an advocate, <laughs> a dad. <laughs> and a scientist, you know, I hope they get their value for money. Not that there's any money there at all, but, you know, figuratively speaking. Uh, so yeah, it's a great opportunity. I, I think, you know, when you're dealing with rare diseases, and I would say that, you know, in the context of genetic cerebral palsy, it, it is a rare disease, or the rare disease is. You know, the importance of having an international group working together is is just essential you know you need the numbers of people who have cerebral palsy to you know to start investigating and you know it's the same with any rare disease you know you're not going to get the the numbers you need to to do really good research if you just concentrate on one country you know you need to stretch all the way around the world and uh, you know, bring people together so it's great that they're an international group there are at least 10 countries represented there, I believe. It, it may well be more than that. And I, I think when I first, I was first investigating them, I was very disheartened to see that there was no representation from the United Kingdom at all on their group, on, on, on their sort of their world map. And I, it was very disappointing, not from the International Cerebral Palsy Genome Consortium's point of view, but the fact that obviously no one in the UK had had, had reached out to help. So I, I'm delighted to... So they're sort of bearing the flag for the UK for this. And hopefully 
uh, can raise awareness more and, and get more and more people interested in, in helping this very, very, very important um, disease area. Yeah, that's amazing. And you're clearly an asset. So <laughs> I think that's oh, definitely already done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to like talk outside of my scope, but I'm really excited to hear that there's more going on with behind the scenes of like figuring out cerebral palsy because I mean I've even been in a doctor's appointment where the doctor said it's a garbage diagnosis it's all it is it's a garbage diagnosis and you need it just for medical coding and it doesn't really mean anything and and I know some people will get that diagnosis of cerebral palsy for their kid and they'll never look any further because they got a cerebral palsy diagnosis and I'm like well don't you think you should have a genetic test to see what maybe the real diagnosis is and I don't know if there's a clear understanding of what that all means anyway for families. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, you've, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and, and I think it's the same with, with anything like epilepsy. You know, if you're given a diagnosis, say, West syndrome, you know, for many people, that's enough. That's all they need to know. You know, that, that's, they, they, they never either, they don't want to know anymore or they, they don't think to, to look for anything further. And um, I would say that's the same with cerebral palsy. And, Perhaps if you know if, if you're able to set up very large registries, and I don't know if there is one in the UK yet, but if you could start to sort of reach out to people with cerebral palsy and, and say, you know, have you thought about having a genetic test and you know, trying raising awareness that in many cases there there is likely to be something that can tell you why you had uh, well, sorry, why you have cerebral palsy other than an accident at birth or what have you. Now, I, I'm sure that, that people would be very interested to know more. So why wouldn't you want to know more if, if you thought that perhaps there were there were more answers to be, more questions to be answered? Well, you're clearly someone who never stops looking. So <laughs> I'm happy to know you're on the case. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave with the audience or anything that I didn't ask you that you want to leave with us today? It's just the Really, the the power of genomics. Um, genomics doesn't have the answer for everything, you know. And we, you know, as I, I mentioned previously, you know, we really only know the function of around one to two percent of the of the human genome. So, you know, there's loads we don't know, and you know that ninety eight percent, or however much you want to call it, you know, it's there for a reason. You know, nature doesn't waste stuff. It may well be that the, these regions outside the genes, they, they, they have a massive role in controlling how these genes are turned on and off. Now, we know not all genes are expressed all the time. You know, they're turned, turned on and off during developmental stages. You know, some genes aren't expressed in certain tissues. So there's still a lot we don't know. So even if we don't, so even if someone's going through a, a genomic screening, genome sequencing at the moment, and you don't find anything, it, it doesn't mean it's not genetic. It just means that perhaps the mutation that's causing the disorder just hasn't been found yet. You know, we just haven't found. So, so it's, you know, go back and have another look in a couple of years when we know more about them, we know more about that disease. So keep looking. You know, genomic techno technologies are advancing so much that it's always worth going back, you know, a few years time. Such good advice. Do labs keep the information on, on, file from your blood draws from your whole exome sequence blood draws and you can just call them and be like hey it's it's three years later can you test again or do families need to take the initiative to go get those blood draws again and then resubmit it for another separate genetic test i probably am not the right person to ask about this um, and i don't know how it works in the states compared to the uk but the hundred thousand genomes which i'm on the idea is that you know the genomes are reanalyzed 
for those people who haven't yet had a genome uh, diagnosis at certain, you know, at certain points in the future. But there's this really intriguing thought now that because the cost of sequencing genomes is getting less and less and less, you know, by the time you might want to re-look at your genome, it's actually possibly going to be cheaper to re-sequence your genome again than it is to actually store the data. And I don't think, and I think this is something people don't realise, that, you know, a genome is, is such a huge amount of data that to actually keep it anywhere costs a lot of money to store it. So this brings you back to the idea, well, if it's going to be, if it's, you know, roughly the same sort of price to store it than it is to sequence it again, why not re-sequence your genome in a few, few years' time using much better technology than we have now? you might find that you have a much better chance of finding your disorder. Super cool. So if you are undiagnosed and you still want answers, just keep checking every couple of years because science is moving rapidly. I would say so. I don't know how practically pra practical that is, if it's possible to do that. But certainly don't give up looking if you're really wanting to find an answer. Okay. Well, thanks, Charles, for uh, spending a little time with me today. I know you're so busy and it's just been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and to just learn about you in general. And the rare disease world is so lucky to have you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. It really has. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 ha!